I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would this morning. We are going to be continuing our sermon series in the epistle of the Philippians. And today, Discovering Joy, Paul's epistle to the Philippians, we are looking still at chapter 1, but we're uh, beginning our reading in verse 12. And so I'm going to invite you to read along with me if you would. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have to come together and to be able to worship the Lord Jesus and to study the scriptures together, to encourage each other and to see the body of Christ edified. What a privilege it is. We thank you for all of those. And Father, today we pray that as we turn our attention to your word, that your Holy Spirit would open it up for us, and cause our minds to be illuminated. Help us to understand, to grasp the truth, and then Lord, we pray that you would help us to apply the truth in our daily lives as we seek to live for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. A little boy was taken to the dentist one day, and uh, unfortunately, as is often the case with little boys, he had a cavity. So the dentist came to him and uh, was getting everything ready, laying out the tools and all that, and so he came over to the little boy and he said, son, what kind of filling would you like in that cavity today? The little boy thought for a moment and he said, I think I'd like chocolate. Wouldn't it be nice if you could have chocolate-flavored fillings? (laughs) That kid was a positive thinker. Paul was a positive thinker. But Paul's positive thinking was not based on his own ingenuity or talent or skills. Paul's positive outlook came as a result of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For he would say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. With that in mind today, I want to consider the subject, finding delight in difficulties. Because that's what Paul did. How many of you know life is full of difficulties? Full of difficulties. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ does not guarantee you a life free of difficulties. Not at all. In fact, Jesus very honestly and very frankly said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, which means we can even find delight in difficulties. That's what Paul did. 
And so with that in mind, we're going to be exploring Paul's intention, his consolation, and his passion that we see laid out in this text. We begin with Paul's intention. Why did he write the letter to the Philippians? What was the purpose behind this epistle? Well, in an overall sense, we can say that it was to encourage the Philippians. To encourage the Philippians. Again, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, we've already seen that Paul had a very positive, warm, affectionate relationship with this special congregation. I mean, after all, he was there planting that church on his second missionary journey. They had partnered with him in the ministry over the years, even when other churches had kind of forgotten about Paul. They were there. They were in his corner, praying for him, supporting him, even sending gifts to him when he was in prison, helping him to survive. Now, they're concerned about Paul. They knew of his difficulties, and Paul wanted them to know that he was okay. Over the holidays, we had a chance to go up to Michigan, visit family, and we did some gift exchanges, and we went and did some exchanging at the mall like you always have to do, and we ate too much like you always have to do. And And then when we were getting ready to leave, our family was like, now call us when you get in. That's what you do. When you take a road trip, you, you tell your family and your friends when you get home. You, you give them a call or you send them a text. Why? Because you don't want them worrying about you. And that's really kind of the idea that we see here. Paul didn't want these brothers, as he calls them, he doesn't want the Philippians worrying about him. And if anyone had a reason to worry about Paul... It was the Philippians. Remember, they were partners with Paul in ministry, and they had watched his ministry over the years. They knew Paul's ministry was no easy trip. It certainly wasn't a pleasure trip. Paul was partners with them through thick and through thin. And since he had left Philippi, he had gone through some tough stuff. I mean, since he had left Philippi, he was the focus of a riot. He was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. His life had been threatened. Paul had been severely beaten on several occasions. He was stoned and left for dead. Paul had suffered shipwreck. Now he's in prison again, this time in Rome. He's under house arrest. His freedom is restricted. There's an impending imperial trial, and they don't know if Paul is going to live or if he's going to be executed. They're probably wondering, is this the end of Paul's ministry? Is this the end of Paul? They don't know. So Paul writes to encourage them, like a a courtesy letter from a weary traveler. Don't worry about me, everything's going to be okay. So Paul wants the Philippians to be comforted. To know the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. He'll talk about that. He wants them to experience the joy of the Lord that he has learned to rest in. So he writes them to encourage them, to strengthen them. And he's even got good news to share. The gospel's being spread. His imprisonment is increasing the progress of 
the gospel. Talk about a positive outlook. So we've explored here, Paul's intention is to encourage the Philippians. So how does he do that? Let's look at his consolation, his reassurance, if you will. In verses 12 and 18, he says, My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. You hear the resolve? I will. It's a choice. He begins this consolation with a reassurance to the Philippians. He says, the gospel is progressing. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, this word progress comes from the Greek prokope. And it's not simply moving forward. It's advancing despite opposition, despite barriers, even despite danger. Moving against opposition. How many of you know that if you stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be opposed? You will be. Somehow, some way in your life, you will be opposed. You will feel like the proverbial salmon swimming upstream. You'll be opposed. And Paul had been opposed. He was moving against the opposition. And this Greek word in other ancient Greek writings is actually used to describe the advance of troops sent before the infantry to blaze a trail. They're out there cutting down the underbush, preparing a trail. So Paul is saying, my imprisonment is blazing a trail for the gospel and it's in its advancement. Now, wait a minute, you might say. Paul was an itinerant preacher. How can his being imprisoned be advancing the gospel? I mean, on the surface, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? How is his imprisonment advancing the gospel? Well, quite simply, it's advancing the gospel by increasing Paul's sphere of influence. And so we find that Paul, through his imprisonment, is forging new territory for the gospel. He's clearing away the brush, as it were, opening up new ground for the gospel message to be shared. And so he says then in verse 13, My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Notice that Paul refers to his imprisonment in the cause of Christ. He's not imprisoned for crimes, but for Christ. It's a total different kind of imprisonment than what these guards are used to. These guards are used to uh, prisoners that are there for theft, they're there for murder, they're there for all sorts of violent crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against the state. But not Paul. His imprisonment is for the cause of Christ. And that kind of imprisonment would no doubt raise some questions. What was this message the guards might be wondering. What was he talking about? What was this gospel that was so important that he is willing to be imprisoned and possibly even killed over this? 
You think it would whet their appetites? I believe they wanted to know what was going on. Come on, Paul. Give us the inside scoop. Tell us about this gospel. No doubt Paul's unique circumstances gave him natural opportunities to share the gospel. And he shared it with the praetorian guards. These were likely the emperor's guards. Those in charge of special prisoners. Now Paul would have been chained to these guards 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Oh, what joy. (laughs) Can you imagine? An utter disregard for personal privacy. Chained to a soldier 24 hours, 7 days a week. And so they rotated these guards. But notice also that when they rotated the guards, Paul had a captive audience. Quite literally. Couldn't go anywhere. And so it gave Paul the opportunity to share the gospel just over this period of time with soldier after soldier after soldier after soldier sharing the guard. Uh, sharing the gospel with the guard. And likely, some of them would have become Christians. In fact, we've got every reason to believe that some indeed did. Because in the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul will say that the pre- some in Caesar's palace send you greetings. And the praetorian guard would have fallen under that umbrella, Caesar's palace, some of Caesar's household. And so Paul reassures the Philippians, but then he also refocuses their perspective. You see, in life, there are two perspectives. You can go through life with one of two perspectives. And maybe I should restate that. You will go through life with one or one or of two perspectives, one or the other. You will either have a human perspective or you will have a divine perspective. You will either see things from your point of view, or you will choose to see things from God's point of view. Those are your two choices. And they are set in sharp contrast to each other. You see, the human perspective is selfish, it's self-centered, it's vengeful, it is indifferent and aloof. The divine perspective is selfless and sacrificing. It is merciful, it is kind, it is gracious. The prophet Jonah had a human perspective when he was called to the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. He wanted God to smear the pavement with the Ninevites. So when God called Jonah, he has such a sense of humor. God does. He knew what was in Jonah's heart. He knew how Jonah hated the Ninevites. He knew he needed to do some work on Jonah. So he says, hey, Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah's like, you've got to be kidding me. And Jonah takes off in the exact opposite direction of the will of God. And God, being God, made arrangements for Jonah to be regurgitated on the beach. And there's Jonah, blanched skin, smelling of vomit, 
decides maybe it is a good idea to do the will of God after all. (laughs) And he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites and exactly what Jonah feared takes place. What's that? They listen and they repent. And God stays his hand of judgment. And Jonah's depressed. Why? Because he had a human perspective. He was seeing things from a selfish, self-centered point of view. He was vengeful. Let's go get some heads. Let's make blood run. And God's like, no, my ways are higher than your ways. I'm gracious, I'm kind, I'm slow to anger. Judas Iscariot, another one who had a human perspective. His on Jesus. He saw Jesus as the one to save Israel from Roman oppression, from Caesar's chains. So when Jesus didn't fit his idea of what the Messiah should look like, he selfishly betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Having a purely humanistic perspective can make life miserable. Indeed, it will make life miserable. can create and intensify stress. But listen, it can literally render the Christian witness useless. Useless. Judas hanged himself. Samson lost his strength, lost his eyesight. King Saul lost his throne. Living life from a human perspective is disastrous. It can lead to envy and pride and even bitterness. In other words, it will warp a person's outlook. They don't see life as they should see it any longer. From a human perspective, life is unfair. It is. It's the truth. From a human perspective, life is unfair. And the sooner you come to terms with that, the happier you'll be. When you come to terms with the fact that from a human perspective, life is unfair. So then let me have a divine perspective. Let me not have a human perspective. Because looking at things from a human perspective will lead you into misery. Because life is unfair. Very frequently, the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. From a divine perspective, we know God is in control. From a divine perspective, we know that God will have the last word. And that when He returns and He recreates the new heavens and the new earth, that great act of recreation, that God will set all things aright. Amen. But that's a divine perspective. A human perspective simply says life is unfair and it fosters envy and bitterness. And bitterness will render the Christian witness useless. The psalmist knew about this when he wrote, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Not thinking clearly, senseless, ignorant. 
Make no mistake, Paul's imprisonment was a treacherous situation. The Philippians needed to view his situation with a divine perspective. Because from a human perspective, they could be tempted to think, life's unfair. See, look at Paul. The gospel must be impotent. I mean, if that's what serving God gets you locked up in prison and you've seen how he's been abused over the years, what good is it from a human perspective? But from a divine perspective, they would be able to say, we know that God is working all things together for Paul's good and for the advancement of the gospel. And so Paul wanted to ensure that the Philippians would have a divine perspective. I wonder how many of us, when we're going through difficult circumstances in life, are tempted to believe God doesn't care. God's not involved. The ancient philosopher Epicurus was right. He's just off somewhere. He created it all and just left it to spin its own web, left it to do its own thing, like a, like a master craftsman who put together a watch, wound it up, and then just set it loose. It's the philosophy behind deism as well. How many of us are tempted to believe God is not involved, that God is detached, that God is aloof, that God is asleep? What we need is a divine perspective that reminds us God does care. God is involved. He is not detached. In fact, He will perfect the good work that He has already begun in us. For long before the farmer sees the first sprout come out of the ground, there is a network of activity taking place below the surface. God is at work. Can you say amen? But that's a divine perspective, not a human one. So how do we change our mind? How do we exchange a human perspective for a divine perspective? In a word, prayer. Prayer. You don't do it on your own. You do it through prayer. The Bible tells us, Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be forsaken. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Apostle Peter wrote, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. He cares for you. Hear that this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life, but God does. And you may feel like God doesn't care, but the word from from God this morning to us is He does in fact care. Cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. He cares for you. The Bible exhorts us to cast our cares upon the Lord, to come to Him when we're weary and heavy laden. And to bring our burdens to Jesus. Leave them there. And we do that in the place of prayer. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he said, 
You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. (laughs) It's the truth. Charles Spurgeon said, Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Prayer. Prayer also refocuses our perspective. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when we pray, we are pouring out our petitions to God, casting our burdens at his feet. And we learn to trust in his gracious, compassionate provision. Prayer reminds us that there is a God in heaven who hears and who answers prayer. It reminds us that he loves us and that he cares for us and that he's working on our behalf even when we don't see it. E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary, wrote, Prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. Listen to this. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull... Do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. Amen. What a profound but simple truth. So Paul saw things from the divine perspective. His imprisonment was for the greater progress of the gospel. His chains were medals of honor. That Paul would feel that his sufferings for Christ were a noble privilege. Not cause for complaining, but cause for rejoicing. And that divine perspective grew out of a godly passion. So let's look at that. Paul's passion for the gospel. Paul was consumed with a passion to preach the gospel. Nothing else held value for him. Nothing else captured his attention. He would say, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? To die is gain. And so he says here in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So all the way into chapter 3, he's continuing this theme. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul was passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. His concerns and ambitions and desires, all of those things were subservient to the gospel. Subservient to the gospel's success and its objectives and its demands. The demands that it would place upon his life. Notice the the feature of self-sacrifice In Paul's perspective, he viewed his imprisonment not as a cause for self-pity. He viewed his imprisonment as a cause for rejoicing and even excitement. Why? Because the gospel was greatly progressing. Not in spite of his circumstances, but through his circumstances. It's absolutely amazing. But what's even more remarkable, listen, some were preaching the gospel 
in order to intensify Paul's sufferings. That's what it tells us in verses 15 and 16. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Some were preaching Christ from selfish motives. Driven by envy and driven by strife, they were preaching Christ out of spite. Wow. And these weren't the Judaizers. How do I know that? Because the Judaizers, he condemned. He said, they are preaching another gospel. Let them be anathema. Let them be damned. These were just your garden variety Christians who copped an attitude and were sharing the gospel because they thought they could turn up the heat on Paul. Who does he think he is anyway? Wow. Doing things out of spite. So sad to see how man treats his fellow man out of spite. Maybe you've heard of the Spite House. Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, a man who was angry with what his parents left him when they passed away. They had given his siblings a beautiful home right off of a main street, not far outside of Boston. And what did they give him? Well, they gave him a parcel of land in front of the house, between the house and the street. Land was about 12 feet wide, couldn't really do anything with it. So he decided that he would show them who was really in charge. And he hired an architect, and he had a house built. And that house average width is about nine and a half feet. A narrow, deep house. Put it right in front of his sibling's home just so he could destroy their view. And over the years, that house was coined Spite House. And I read that and I looked at the picture and I thought, how sad that somebody could be so childish, so immature, so human. Because the human race, created in the image of God, has sinned. And now we who should be mirrors of God's glory to the world well, the mirror's broken. So we tend to be selfish, self-centered, right? Build a spite house. But you know what's even worse? There are at least eight or nine spite houses throughout the world. Do a Google search. It's, it's ridiculous. These tiny little houses put in places most of the time just to disrupt somebody else's pleasure. The, the, the thinnest of them is only 40 inches wide. It's in Brazil. It's ridiculous. I mean, who can live like that? You, you practically have to sleep standing up. Well, like these angry beneficiaries, some preachers were preaching out of spite. Likely jealous of Paul's success, jealous of his notoriety. The great apostle had now come to Rome as a prisoner. And he was already making an impact. Sharing the gospel with the praetorian guard. So these preachers who were preaching out of spite turned up the heat, 
thought, maybe we can make it even a little bit tougher on good old Paul. So what was Paul's response? Well, he called a bear out of the woods, and he called fire out of heaven down upon them, cursed them, right? (laughs) No. What did he do? Well, he acted Christ-like. He rejoiced. He celebrated that Christ was being preached all the more. And then rather than dwelling on that, Paul turns his attention onto those who are preaching from goodwill. You see, he says they're, they're being emboldened by his example. They're spreading the gospel now without fear, engaging in ministry with even more energy than they had before. Once again, Paul rejoices. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I've read this so many times, but this week as I was reading it, I was like, I just felt so convicted of my own pettiness at times. Just to be able to look at this and go, wow, considering everything Paul had been through. And now here he is in prison. And at this point, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And yet he's even rejoicing over those spiteful, immature preachers who are preaching in order to make it harder on him. And he's like, praise God, gospel is being preached. I'm like, whew, I got a long way to go. We have a long way to go, don't we? As we endeavor every day to say, Lord, make my perspective your perspective. Help me exchange my human perspective with one that is divine. So we've considered his intention, his consolation, his passion. Now let's look at an implication for us today. Joy and divine perspective are correlated. They're correlated or co-related, as you might say. Joy and divine perspective are correlated. In other words, joy is contingent on maintaining a divine perspective. Read that with me. Joy is contingent on maintaining a divine perspective. And we could give you examples all morning long, but we won't because we know the roast will burn. (laughs) But let me just give you a quick one. Children of Israel delivered from Egyptian bondage by great and mighty acts of God. And now they've come across the desert. They're standing at the Red Sea. The Red Sea's in front of them. The Egyptian army is bearing down upon them. They can almost feel the breath on the back of their necks. And rather than thinking about God's goodness and his power that was just displayed in Egypt, they focus on the Red Sea. They focus on the dust clouds being churned up by the hooves of the Egyptian army's horses. And they despair. Woe is us! It would have been better to die in Egypt. Moses, this is your fault. Kill him! That's their attitude. It is a purely human perspective. A perspective, I might add, that was pretty reasonable from a human understanding of how the world works. Was it not? We have an ocean in front of us. We've got an enemy combatant behind us. We're outnumbered. We're dead. But from a divine perspective, it was completely wrong. Moses 
remembering the mighty acts of God, stood before the Red Sea, raised his staff, and in the name of God, he rebuked it. It parted, and they traveled over on dry land. Wow. Joy is contingent on maintaining a divine perspective. So here's Paul, back in prison. He's already spent two years in prison in Caesarea. I won't go through the litany of everything he's already suffered, but you know the story. He even got bit by a viper. He eked out an existence. He knew what it was to abound, but he also knew what it was to be abased. And yet he reflected on the blessings of the Lord. He remembered his brothers and sisters in Christ and how he cherished them. He noticed how the gospel was greatly advancing. What was the result? Paul's heart was full of joy and full of rejoicing. In other words, Paul made the daily decision to maintain a divine perspective. You hear that? Daily decision. Friends, there are times when you'll go through difficulties that are so extreme, you have to make the decision not only daily, but sometimes hourly. Sometimes hourly. Where you have to recognize that your mind is wandering away from God's perspective and you have to wrestle it back and say, No, I know what the Bible says and I believe it. And I choose to focus on God's word and his truth. Can you say amen? His priority and his passion were the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that focus helped him maintain a divine perspective. So in closing, let me just say this. If we would maintain a divine perspective based on divine priorities, then we too can find delight in difficulties. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge before you today that life can indeed be very, very difficult. We also acknowledge that you forewarned us that this would be the case. But you also gave us reason to rejoice in that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. The gospel has overcome sin. The resurrection has overcome death. Help us, Lord, when we're going through these difficult trials that we face from time to time, to have and to hold a divine perspective that we might live unto your glory. And now, Father, as we give back to a portion of what you've richly blessed us with, we ask that you would take these offerings and that you would give us wisdom to know how best to invest them In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give to the work of the Lord.